when we make with AI, we need to understand that the AI is not the boss. Once we think it's the boss, then of course, like, we're supposed to be afraid. But the nice thing about this language of co-pilots is that co-pilot means there's a pilot. The pilot is the human. The co-pilot is the AI. If you do not keep that in mind, then it's like you're the victim. Hi, I'm Aaron Walter. And I'm Eli Woolery. Today, we welcome back John Maeda, who is currently Vice President of Design and Artificial Intelligence at Microsoft. You're probably familiar with John's work, but if not, take a listen to episode 42 of this show, where he talks about the arc of his remarkable career. In today's episode, we talk with John about his new role at Microsoft, what's most misunderstood about AI, and his optimistic take on what the future holds for designers who embrace these new tools. And one more thing before we get to the show. If you could take a moment right now to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or rate the show on Spotify, that will help us reach new people. Go ahead and hit the pause button right now and leave your review. We'll wait. See, actually, we have a goal to hit 500 reviews on Apple Podcasts by the end of the summer, and we would love your help reaching that goal. Thank you for listening, and thanks in advance for your review. Now on to the show. With Freehand by Envision, we've built a best-in-class visual collaboration platform used by thousands of enterprise customers inclusively priced for the whole organization at 50% the cost of Miro and Mural, and now with the Intelligent Canvas, allowing teams to maximize their impact by adding intelligence, automation, and connection to the canvas. Try Freehand by Envision today for free at freehandapp.com. This episode is brought to you by Fable, who make it easy to build accessible, inclusive products Learn more at makeitfable.com and later on in the show. John Maeda, welcome back to the Design Better podcast. Glad to be back. My gosh, I made it back. Good sign. <laughs> it's, it's great to have you again. Let's just start off. We're going to talk about the design and AI report, but let's start off. Tell us about your new role at Microsoft. What drew you to work there? Well, I am the Vice President of Design and Artificial Intelligence in the office of the CTO. And I've been lucky to land during what is not the AI winter. I call this like the AI spring break in Fort Lauderdale or whatever. And I joined at the same time a new lightweight SDK uh, open sourced called Semantic Kernel for large language model AIs was shipping. So I'm on that team, really just basically making AI available to everyone to add to their app. Yeah, I mean, it's really fascinating what's happening with AI right now, and Microsoft is in the thick of it, both the work that they're doing internally and also partnerships with OpenAI. What do you think is the most misunderstood aspect of AI right now? There's a lot of pontificating about it. In fact, as we speak, there's a gathering of AI leaders, including Satya Nadella in Washington, D.C., talking about you know, what's happening there. And we can talk about the governmental role in just a minute. But when you think about AI and the general public's understanding of it and what can happen, 
what's misunderstood from your perspective? Well, I don't know what misunderstanding means anymore. I think that understanding either happens well or less well. <laughs> so, and I think that anything technical historically is hard to understand. Same like anything in design. If you aren't a designer, you don't understand. It's like the beautiful pattern behind your self over there, Aaron, that I've always admired. You know, it's got references to past design legends. And it's been modernized. There's a color palette. There's a form. There's the lineage to actual execution of something like the Motorola logo, which people don't know anymore, but as if you recall, or even the Herman Miller <laughs> logo, whatever. So there's so many ideas in that pattern. But you wouldn't know if you weren't in a classical design space, right? So I think AI starts in the world of technology, computer science, decades of research. So there's going to be a lack of understanding for at least 99% of the population about what it is. But it's so rapidly becoming part of just popular vernacular, popular conversations. It's on the you know nightly news pretty regularly. You know, there are teachers, professors wringing hands about using chat GPT and other tools for you know, getting around schoolwork and so forth. And people are using it in really unique ways very quickly. In fact, I think ChatGPT is the fastest growing product in history of digital product is what I've heard. So it's jumping into culture very quickly. I don't know, do you have a message for people of like how best to understand it and how best to start thinking about how it fits into their life? There's two things to that. The first thing is that, again, it's a technology, so it's going to be hard to understand. So if you don't understand it, what happens is you will fear it by default. And if you're told by different people to fear it, if like 10 people are telling you to fear it versus one person, you're going to fear it a lot. So that's why, if you recall, I spent a lot of time on that How to Speak Machine book. Yeah. That was like six years because I want to explain to people how AI machine learning works. And in reality, it helped me understand how it works. And my takeaway from that was, wow, being able to speak machine is really powerful. And only developers get to do that. But someday more people, when they get to do it, that could be quite empowering. Do you have to speak machine? So second point is, now you can speak human to the machine. And it kind of doesn't understand you. It can take that thing you're saying in non-computerese and make it actionable. So you're speaking to the machine in, in a constrained version of a speaking human. That's why all these people who use ChatGPT felt the feeling of being a developer. Developer is extremely powerful because with a few magical incantations, they're doing work that would take thousands of people with a snap of their fingers. John, one sort of metaphor that you used when you're walking through your design and AI report was the movie Arrival, which is a beautiful movie. I love that movie. And this idea of essentially talking with an alien. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I'm really glad. And this is so good to get to be on your podcast because I know both of you are kind of alien yourself. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, 
Like I, I, I know Aaron is tired of me saying this, but Freddie and the sweaty monkey finger to me was one of those great moments in the history of products and technology because it was the first time I encountered a human, human, human voice in a digital product that made me laugh about doing something. It was an emotional connection going to Aaron's emotional design work, you know? So I kind of feel like when I began the design and AI report, I knew that there's so many references in science fiction. And the greatest one is the Arrival movie or the Arrival short story also by Ted Chang, which is about trying to talk to this alien race. And it's also many countries are racing to talk to the alien, kind of like how it feels right now. Like, who can talk to the alien the best? Who can prompt engineer the best? Whose alien is better? My alien is better than your alien. But in reality, people are saying to themselves, I don't really understand what the alien is thinking or how it works. Can someone tell me how to communicate with it? So it's the same kind of frustration. And if you've seen the movie out there, don't mean to be like a spoiler, the idea that in the end, the alien is speaking in a completely different space-time language that unlocks how to think, period. Now, we're not there in this movie yet. <laughs> it's just a predictive model. It's not going to open a space-time windows like Arrival. But it feels exciting because, just like that film, the alien arrived and so many people want to talk with it. And there's so many versions of this alien that we don't understand. So it's pretty exciting, but also scary to many people. It's a very apt metaphor because it does feel alien. Like there's another thing among us that's new and exciting and powerful. And there's lots of opportunity of how that could reshape us and reshape our world. Many of our listeners are in the design space. User experience designers, they might be product managers, sort of design adjacent, some are engineers. What do all of us need to start bringing into our process, our thinking? How do we need to evolve as creators of experience? What skills do we need to acquire? So here's the problem that I laid out in the design and AI report specifically, because I didn't know it until I looked at it. But it's the fact that these, what's called pre-trained foundation models, these models that are generally knowledgeable of spaces versus good at one thing, they've been evolving and they've been being built over time, like well over a decade. And we're experiencing the first wave of these models, which are language-based. And we're going to experience models that are next much more image-based. We see glimpses of it with the generative AI, kind of, oh my gosh, it makes a picture of a picture. I find it so funny how like people are afraid of AI making art, but as you know, no one's afraid of an artist per se, unless if you're like a dictator maybe. <laughs> but it's like, <laughs> oh my gosh, it made a picture. Oh, dangerous. Like, oh wow, artists are dangerous. Well, they all are kind of art, right? But I kind of feel that when we make with AI, we need to understand that the AI is not the boss. Once we think it's the boss, then of course, like, we're supposed to be afraid. But the nice thing about this language of co-pilots is that co-pilot means there's a pilot. The pilot is the human. The co-pilot is the AI. If you do not keep that in mind, 
then it's like you're the victim. Now, does that mean that we humans are the, you know, be all, end it all to everything? No, it's just that we have this computational capability that was only in the hands of the best developers in the world to write software in the hands of everyone. And the more we use it well, the more productive we can be, the more competitive we can be, the more our company can be more competitive or my nonprofit or even my family can be to thrive. So how do we use it? Let's understand it. So on, the, on that topic, John, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about you know, there's this idea of prompt engineering, which is maybe a bit oversold, and we can link in the show notes to a, an interesting essay on that. But what's a good way to learn how to talk to AI? You mentioned Erica Hall's book, uh, Conversational Design. Are things like that helpful, or what are some other techniques we might use? Yeah. People try to say prompt design or prompt engineering or prompt whatever. I think it's funny how the word prompt has become part of the vernacular because I'm not sure what that word means. I think my favorite meaning of it is, oh, I don't know what to say. Let's prompt you to say something. That's all these new kinds of pre-trained foundation models that are language-based as we know it need. There's a metaphor used by the Sequoia Capital Partner. What is her name? She talks about a genius in a room with no windows and no access to the outside world and no memory. So you showed up in this room and it's like, hey, how you doing, Eli? How you doing, Aaron? Hello. That's all it knows. That, okay, two people walked in. Hey, I want to know about, like, the internet. Oh, yeah, well, I haven't been out there in the world, like, for a year at least. Let me tell you what I think it is. But I'm going to actually say it is this way, so I appear to be more confident than I should be about it. <laughs> um, and like, hey, actually, hey, AI, in this room, I've, I've got some news. You're walking in with like a newspaper and it's like, it reads the whole newspaper. Like, Whoa, I know more new stuff. Okay, let me tell you about the world differently because I have more new stuff. And you leave the room and close the door, it forgot you ever existed and you show up again. So prompting is just like getting that AI to get up to speed or to nudge it in a direction. And the neat thing about the word engineering is it is the purview of engineers because there are technical constraints to how you construct these prompts. You can't make an ultra-long prompt. A long prompt costs you more money than a short prompt. So like, how do you now use this resource wisely in a technical machinery type of way is engineering. So that's why we have semantic kernel as a way for anyone to play with that cost-benefit question make more sophisticated prompts than just showing up and asking it for like a cool surfboard design, like asking to change our entire business, specifically in the guitar market where we own half the wood supply of the world, blah, 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 blah. More context, more complex output. Better inputs, better outputs. Engineering, right? We'll return to the conversation after this quick break. Methodical crafts coffee and tea for people of all kinds. They've been around and roasting for more than eight years, and they are certified coffee nerds. On their site, you'll find useful brewing guides that'll teach you how to turn your coffee brewing chore into a beloved ritual and really dial in that perfect cup. 
I'm a longtime subscriber to the Roaster's Choice subscription and start every day with a cup of methodical coffee. I have to say, without fail, every morning when I wake up, I am excited to drink their coffee because it is fantastic. Methodical's packaging, their website, the entire experience, it's just beautifully designed. Craft a cup that you'll love with Methodical Coffee by visiting methodicalcoffee.com and use our discount code DESIGNBETTER to get 10% off your first order of coffee or tea. That's methodicalcoffee.com. I've got two young kids who can be a little bit on the noisy side, so my wife and I have gotten used to using closed captions on those rare occasions when we get a chance to sit down and watch a show together. Lots of us have experienced the benefits of products that were initially designed for people with disabilities, from closed captions to dark mode on your phone or laptop to voice-to-text to electric toothbrushes. Designing products for all people, regardless of abilities, leads to greater adaptability, usability, customization, and personalization. With 1 billion people worldwide living with disabilities, Fable Engage helps UX teams collect feedback from people with disabilities to help you build more accessible products. Fable Upskill provides custom accessibility training for digital teams to gain skills to build inclusive products. The best digital teams like Shopify, Microsoft, and Spotify partner with Fable to make better products for everyone. We're big fans of Fable, and we know you will be too. Learn more by requesting a demo at www. Dot makeitfable.com slash design better. That's www.makeitfable.com slash design better. And now back to the show. Can you tell us a little bit about the types of roles on your team? I'm just curious, like, what does a team look like today that's working on AI? Is it the same type of roles? Well, I don't have to tell you all or the group who listens now, it's primarily engineers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because people's like, oh my gosh, like, you know, why is it the more design? And well, I'm of the unpopular mindset that design is only relevant unless you're differentiating based upon pure design because the technology is all equal. But if the technology is differentiated, no one's going to care about design because they like the fact that it glows or hovers or whatever. Like, how it feels matters less, right? It's like, oh my gosh, it's a, it's a Formula One sports car that no one else has, and it goes really fast. Oh, it's uncomfortable. No, 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 no. I'll get in. I'm going to drive this. I want to win the race. It's only when everyone else has the same powered car that you're like, hey, I kind of want to sit in a seat that doesn't hurt me. I kind of want to be able to control the car in a way that is intuitive. <laughs> you know, all these things. So... Right now, we are in a technology-first era. And part of my role is discovering where, well, actually, you know, because I can do all the coding side and to understand that empathy, I guess. I'm like, yeah, oh my gosh. But, you know, as this technology matures, I think the design is going to start to matter. Well, what do you mean? Do you mean the color choice or the pattern choice? No, no, no. It's this fundamental problem of form follows function doesn't make sense to people. And unless it makes sense to people, they won't know how to hold it, how to use it, how to use it well, how to cognitively grasp it well, to be good at it, to feel confident. It's not about the, as we know, how it looks. It's how we use it. And those design ideas are really emerging 
in Microsoft now, which is really exciting. Because we think about design systems, right? Design systems. The design system team here, it's a system called Fluent, which I wasn't fluent in at all, of course, because like I'm more of a material design person before coming here. Got to work with that team, an amazing combination of technology, user research insights, really inspiring team. So when I arrived at Microsoft, I was like, whoa, what's this thing Fluent? And what's exciting about Fluent is Fluent is evolving around these AI questions of usability, enjoyability, accuracy. And I can kind of see that Fluent is a place where this kind of AI thinking may land in a design system for the first time, which I'm excited about. Can we unpack that just a little bit for, for yeah, listeners? Please. Because this co-pilot concept for UX, collaborative UX, is also true for engineering that AIs, like you can code some amazing stuff. You know, in our call with Matt Mullenweg, he talked about AI being used to write entire WordPress plugins, do really sophisticated things. Could you talk us through like, what does it look like for a UX designer or a programmer to have this co-pilot? What's their workflow like? Again, I haven't been living in this franchise very long. Uh, I was using Visual Studio Code, but now I do it like all the time. Wow. I now understand why people like use it for everything. There was this text editor called Emacs when I was growing up in the computer world. Emacs, the icon is the kitchen sink, like everything but the kitchen sinks. It could do everything. You could do your email. You could do everything from this text editor window. It's incredible. And you never had to leave Emacs. So Visual Studio Code is like that for developers. You just can sit in that window and do like so much. You can open a terminal. You can like spin up an Azure instance of XYZ. It's like, what? I didn't even leave anything. So it's like the magical spell bench. And so what I saw, once you see the GitHub Copilot that aids developers running in VS Code, I was like, Wow, these suggestions are really good. <laughs> and I forgot the numbers, but like the average developer's productivity like shoots up way past twenty percent increase. And I, as someone who's like running code, is like, oh my gosh, it's like, yeah, I would write that. So that autocomplete is extraordinary, and I'm sure we'll see it in every design app. This kind of autocomplete—that's astounding. What does it mean, though? It means that you're guiding the AI to create. It's like in that ghost uh, movie with Patrick Swayze. You're <laughs> 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 guiding the clay to be formed on the wheel. Um, uh, it's happening very quickly. So you need to make sure you don't mess up the clay so it like folds over or does something that you wouldn't really do and is, I don't know, it's kind of hard to say like, when we humans do things or we write all the time, I think we're wrong in ways that we correct because we can understand how we got there. But I think if you autopilot yourself to a certain point in the journey space, as you know, you're like, well, how'd this get here? I guess I'll just accept this as the best outcome. I think that guidance approach, like what's a co-pilot been doing? Like I went to get a Coke, I came back. Whoa, where are we? We're like over flying, we're flying over like Cuba. How did we get here? Um, oh, well, we're here. I guess, I guess we can't go backwards. That's a question for how we work in this new mode. Yeah. So you're really optimistic, John, I think it seems about the near-term future of AI, and I think I largely share that optimism. I'm curious, though, you know, looking down the road, 
we're already seeing some sort of emergent behaviors from these systems that are surprising and, and maybe unexpected. And as they become more sort of generally intelligent, how are you thinking about that? How are you thinking about this whole question around alignment and are they aligned to our interests? Do you have any fears or, or hopes around that? Oh my gosh. I watched a few science fiction movies in my time and I have been reading all the AI XYZ. It's so confusing. There's all these AI churches. It's unclear who runs a church of these <laughs> different AI churches. I think the thing that I always remember is that it, it's not human and it's not understanding us. And I think it's easy for we humans to think it understands us because like in the Design and AI report, I was really happy to find the quote by Joseph Weizenbaum in the 1970s. And he was my AI professor at MIT. And I remembered him late stage career, we all kind of dismissed him as the old guy teaching us. And then years later, I'm like, whoa, this guy's really important. Like he invented Eliza, the first chatbot in 1966. And he didn't go off and like create a giant company because he fled Nazi Germany as a youth. He had this question of what happens when powerful tools get in the hands of the wrong people. So that reference I make, I forget what pages is in the report, but Dr. Weizenbaum 1970-something, wrote something to the fact that he discovered that programmers are really close to their computers. They treat them as special objects. In the same way that, I'm sure, Eli, your surfboard maybe has a nickname. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh my gosh, yeah, that's like Bertha. Bertha's amazing, and I take Bertha everywhere. Or like, as children, we talk to dolls. I'm not sure if we're talking to dolls, and the dolls talk back. So we're wired to have the social component with even inanimate objects. And when an inanimate object observes more animate capabilities, and this is actually chapter two of How to Speak Machine, when things appear living, we can't help but think it's maybe alive. And so it isn't the AI's fault that we think it's understanding. It's our wiring to hope that it understands me because it doesn't understand us. John, how do you think about regulation in the AI space? As I mentioned, you know, Satya Nadella's in DC right now talking with Congress people. Hmm. Well, I don't speak for the company on that front, first of all. I think a way to think of this era as not dissimilar to Silicon Valley as being kind of like Detroit of our times. And if you study the evolution of the automobile, like a lot of companies are making, auto, a lot of startups making automobiles, right? That's a, some of the great movies we have out there about like so-and-so wanted to make a car. And it turns out that was very common because that was a startup of the day. At some point, if everyone's making cars that are not good for consumers, you should probably do something about that. Like, hey, this thing called a safety belt's actually kind of good. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, oh, it adds cost to the car. No, 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 we can't add it. But I was like, oh, data shows that having a safety belt is a good thing. Or like, hey, you know, you, you used uh, use gasoline power, whatever, whatever. Maybe there's data that shows that that's not good for the environment. Let's uh, promote more EVs. But oh, well, EVs have like lithium, whatever, and pollution. All it's, it, There's so many factors. And so I think that macroscopic thinking coinciding on anything that's new and emergent at scale I think we, we humans always do that, and government always is involved in that macro question. So not surprised that this is a hot topic. I mean, ironically, 
climate is not a hot topic. <laughs> because people are talking about AI, blah, 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 blah. Because I was at a company called Everbridge before, if you remember. It's in the mm -hmm. whole space of disaster and risk management. And I was like, wow, the world's really dangerous. Whoa, there's a lot of water. Whoa, <laughs> a lot of heating up, whatever. I think that's kind of dangerous. <laughs> so, um, so I think of AI as doesn't scare me as much as the long-term impacts of climate and what we can do in that space. Yeah. As we wrap this up, John, where can people go to learn more? Obviously, it's How to Speak Machine is a great resource, but are there other books, talks, podcasts that you recommend? Well, well, you know, the neat thing about being around so many developers again is this phrase, code speaks louder than words. So I find that, like I'm doing like cooking workshops with Semantic Kernel, like cooking with Semantic Kernel. We have like a LinkedIn course series on that. And I, I like how different people I know from my past, user researchers, design ops, product, and brand, they're like, hey, wait. Is that all this is? <laughs> I can write code, and I don't write code like in C or in Java or in Python. I just write it in like language, and I can get the computer to do things. Oh, this is what it can do. Oh, this is what it isn't that good at. Oh, well, that's why they're saying these things. I think I just encourage people not to be passive and to make think of like desktop publishing. If you remember that era. There was a whole generation of people who were anti-computers. Generally, the people that were the older generation, you know, no, 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 this is how you set type. You send it to a photolithography shop, and then you cut it out with an X-Acto knife, and you use rubber cement, and this is how you do it, and you photograph it, and then it comes back, and you iterate with this, and you cut it again with your X-Acto knife, and this is how you do it son, daughter, or whatever. But it was people who were like, oh, yeah, I got a Macintosh. Yeah, okay, I'll admit it. Okay, all right. And, you know, <laughs> and then, yeah, okay. Oh, yeah, it's really easy to set type. And yeah, I know I was against it. But it was funny because like, I remember Paul Rand was super anti-computers. And then when I visited him in his studio, he had a Macintosh there. And I was <laughs> like, wait, aren't you like anti-computers? He says, no, I'm using Quark. I'm like, oh, okay, wait a, <laughs> wait a second. I mean, he wasn't using himself. He had his assistant doing that. But still, he was like, you know, sign of the times. I began to make in it, understand its constraints. Think about Emigre. Do you remember that type shop, uh, E-M-I-G-R-E, Emigre? It was, uh, it, was Silic it was San Francisco based. They were playing with rasterized typefaces in the era of the image writer, like pre-laser writer. And... They were like making quote unquote type that all the real type people quote unquote like hated. But they were designers experimenting the medium and they are looked upon today as true pioneers because they didn't waste time saying how bad this thing was. They began to build type, ship it in PostScript. People started using it and then people just sort of started changing their attitude about it. So you know, don't bother watching so many things out there. Why don't you just sort of make stuff in it and figure out what it can do and what it can't do and you know, form your own judgment is what I suggest. Well, that's fantastic advice. And I love playing around with these tools and Aaron and I have been collaborating with some things that involve AI uh, for the show too. And 
it's a wonderful playground in a lot of ways. And I, and I think, you know, people should have that opportunity to get out there and treat it more playfully. Well, not even just play. It's like, it's so useful. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you're just typing things into chat GPT, it just doesn't, it's interesting. But once you use things like semantic kernel or Langchain or a, a programming apparatus to support your scaled thinking and daily production, you just discover like, whoa, I mean, I just saved like three hours of time, not just today, but every week. I think those ahas have not happened yet for people in this space because access to speaking machine in this new AI era, there's a distance to it. That's why removing that distance is a high priority for my team. So anyone who may be a pseudo app developer or a process-oriented thinker wanting to build with large language model AI is capable of doing it. Wait, I'm sure you've had Allison Rand. I think you had Allison Rand on a past episode. I'm teaching Allison how to do this right now. <laughs> so <laughs> Allison is building a large language model system for her 4050 project. And she was a web developer, quote unquote, a long time ago. But she's like, oh, oh, you mean I do this and this and this? I think those stories might start to emerge, which I think are important today. It's fantastic. And John, where can people learn more about you and go see your report? Oh, just type in uh, South by Southwest Design and Tech Dot Report. My SEO is fairly good for that. It's terrible for everything else. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's the one SEO that I'm okay with right now. Because when you die, your SEO goes to crap. That's what I realized. (laughs) It's true. I'm still alive. I still get SEO. There we go. John, thank you so much for being on the show. It's always a treat to talk to you. It's good to see you. Oh my gosh, back at you. Like I said, your monkey finger changed my life, literally. No no joke. It was like, wow, okay. (laughs) Maybe it's going to be a cooler place out there. Thanks, John. Eli and I love producing this podcast, but sometimes we find ourselves wondering, what sort of feedback does our audience have? How could we improve the show? Maybe you could help us by taking just a couple minutes to complete a survey, answering a few questions about your thoughts about the show, sharing your feedback, and telling us a little bit about you. To take the survey, just go to dbtr.co slash survey. That's dbtr.co slash survey. Our thanks in advance for completing the survey. It'll really help us improve the show. This episode was produced by Eli Woolery and me, Aaron Walter, with engineering and production support from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. If you found this episode useful, we hope that you'll leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to finer shows. Or simply drop a link to the show in your team's Slack channel, designbetter.com slash podcast. It'll really help others discover the show. Until next time.